Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. The digital revolution's in full swing. We're trying to understand it and the incredible implications it's having on every facet of our lives. One of our favorite guests, and I believe our longest running guest on Cloud Wars Live is Wayne Saden, who's been a CIO, a CTO, a CDO, and has been now for the last few years advising boards of directors and CEOs on digital strategy and business strategy coming together to drive success. Wayne, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. Hey, Bob, it's a pleasure to be here. As it's been for the last 35 or so episodes, um, it has been a long run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wayne, I have to ask you, you've always, uh, you know, got, you know, interesting backgrounds or attire. Now it's your shirt. So uh, Bank Restack, is this a good one? Well, I used to work for a bank called Bank United, which is not the Bank United in Florida. It's the one started by Lou Ranieri in Houston, Texas. And this shirt goes back to 1998 or so when we picked up the whole bank. We were in two towers in an office park and we flipped them because we were growing so fast. So I like to wear old shirts that remind me of successes or failures. So for the, anybody that worked for Bank United of Texas uh, 20 something years ago, remember the restack. <laughs> well, <clears throat> Interesting, um, Wayne, I know you've always, as always, got some great things you want to talk about, but a bank restack, you know, just stretching that a little, I mean, uh, I saw this thing about now Goldman Sachs and AWS working together, Goldman Sachs getting into the cloud business. That's a restack of a different sort, it seems. You know, I spent 30 years in financial services as primarily a CIO and a CTO, and it was an industry that co-created more than many because banks recognize that technology and information matter. You know, I use the quote a lot from Walter Riston, the founder, architect of the Citibank versus First National Citibank, who said information about money is as valuable as the money itself in the early 1970s. And the investment banks heard what Riston said, and that's why they're the masters of the universe. They figured out that this stuff matters. And when you go into an investment bank, the technologist sits at the right hand of the CEO. The technology stuff matters. And so we recognize in that industry that working with the best and brightest vendors we can find to build solutions for us that either we can sell or that we can let them sell really advances our mutual aims. They like us. They invest for us. It cuts our IT spend and still builds the tools we want. And the industry's been like that forever. And it really changes the way the industry works because we partner with smart people and build cool stuff. So I don't think this is anything out of the ordinary. It is big because of the player names, but it's a tradition that's gone on in financial services for 40, 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I do think it's wild too that, just one other comment on that, Wayne, that Goldman Sachs chose, I think, very specifically to put the term cloud in the name of this new business that's created, right? It didn't want to say, you know, there's the new Goldman Sachs data enriched service for clients, but uh, they very specifically wanted to have cloud in there. So there's a certain, uh, you know, clearly a certain buzz, value, name recognition, brand recognition that's come around that. So um, it, it, it was interesting. I think Goldman Sachs is 157, 158 years old. So uh, it, it, again, I think shows the, the incredible vibrancy of this market and getting companies from 
financial services. You say they've always been in here, but here's one, you know, a century and a half old that says, hey, time for me to become a cloud company. And they're saying it loud and proud. Uh, look, the reason that I'm part of this journey with you, Bob, is when we hooked up three more than three years ago, uh, we both saw that the cloud was transformational. Um, I'm an old-time CIO. You know, I had used to have mainframes and walk through the uh, the valleys of mainframe machines, and now I never want to buy another server the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> let somebody else do it. Uh, just like I don't want to be in the power plant business, I want my electricity to come from a socket in the wall. Yeah. And so it's changing the way we operate. And I think the big companies are recognizing the brand value. You know, we'll talk a little bit about how branding matters in this in this segment, because we're going to talk about that with a company and a couple of companies. And so putting cloud into something adds, I don't know, uh, 2x to the multiple. And investment <laughs> banks are all about the multiple. Yeah, yeah. That's great setup, Wayne. So as always, like I mentioned, you've got some good things going on. And I sure had fun with you a couple of weeks ago on the industry cloud battleground week um, where we took a look at, you know, six of the top cloud vendors in the world and what they're doing across in general, across industry clouds, but also, you know, the, the first day, then we talked about what they're doing in healthcare, manufacturing, financial services, and retail. So Wayne, love to hear some of your thoughts on that. And you were intimately involved in a lot of those conversations as well and the analysis of them. And now I've had a little time to think about it. So what what uh, what impressions did that make on you, Wayne? You know, Bob, as you know, I worked with four of the vendors. So I talked about Microsoft, Oracle, SAP, and Salesforce. And I worked across all four of the verticals because I can't hold a job. So I work in all the verticals. Um, and so here's my comment. Um, I was impressed by everybody's performance. They really did a custom job. It was not just, here's one of our marketing slicks. Let's turn it into a video and show it. So I was very happy that they gave us real content. And that's a tribute probably to you as much as them for helping give them the right direction. But, you know, Microsoft told us they were the jack of all trades. We got this, we got that, we got this other thing over here. Oracle told us we support multiple industries. And I know that I've used them in financial services. I've used them in supply chain. I've used them in utilities. So nothing surprising there. SAP was this quietly competent Germanic company. We got that manufacturing logistics, uh, distributing billions of doses of vaccine. We got that. And Salesforce was everything starts with the customer. And by the way, let's talk about Slack. So the challenge for every one of these vendors that I worked with was you didn't surprise me. Everybody played to type. So here's a message I would like to give. I'm a CIO and I buy things. There are many CIOs who buy things. How do you surprise us? How does a vendor that's seen in this niche show us that they understand the rest of the industry and that they don't see everything as a customer problem or as a uh, toolkit problem or as a ERP, a CRM problem? Surprise us by saying, we get what these other people are talking about and yet we embrace and extend the other ideas. So that's the comment. If we do another battleground, I would love to see the vendors play against type and so kind of surprise the audience and show us that they really aren't a one trick pony with a very large trick. Yeah. So that's my comment to everybody. Did a great job, but helped change my perception of you instead of reinforcing it. Yeah, Wayne, that, that's a very interesting point. And I think, um, you know, there's probably a balance to be struck there, right? You know, 
as you said, you know, reinforce you doing these good things. But as we get into this new world of these industry specific solutions, and as the customers that they're that are being served are themselves changing profoundly, here's how this sort of rolls up to a different uh, sort of outcome or a different sort of solution here. That's a I think that's a very insightful point. Well, thank you. Yeah, you know, the problem I see is that you get into, as a CIO that's done a lot of consulting and worked in a number of companies, you find yourself with a company that says, we're an SAP <laughs> culture, we're a Microsoft culture, we're an Oracle culture. And it's very hard to break out of that thinking. So for the vendors, you know, you wind up retaining your customers, and that's great. They're loyal. You do a great job. But it's harder for you to change my perception if I'm an, in an Oracle shop and the solution is really SAP the cultures just feel differently. So yeah. IT departments that have used these products in many cases for decades, you know, and some, some of the products, SAP and Oracle, we're on going on our third generation of IT people that have installed and supported these products. So break out of your mindset and rethink how your culture comes across to people. Because I know having worked with all these products, you have an enormous breadth of things. And I can apply the SAP product line to solve a problem that Oracle may have solved or Microsoft to solve a problem that Salesforce might have solved, but just make it feel like you can adapt to whatever my culture is. And that'll help you when you're doing the competitive takeouts. Yeah. So Wayne, let me <clears throat> toss in one uh, sort of related comment on that uh, uh, playing not to type or going beyond the type type plus. Um, I was fascinated uh, by the, some of the numbers and the commentary uh, given by um, the Snowflake CEO, Frank Slootman last week on their earnings call. And one of the things that I thought was just extraordinary, um, he said that if you look at Snowflake's 10 biggest customers, four of the 10 are Fortune 500 companies, you know, well-known, well-established, been around a long time. Four of them are companies that are not yet 10 years old. So this appeal to, you know, uh, new companies, old companies, fast growth, you know, stable transitional companies. I think it's sometimes the, anyway, that just struck me because right. Some of them might say, well, it's obvious. Well, I don't think most people think it is obvious. I think most people would have thought they're going after the big companies because the big companies have the money and they need to do this, but it's the little companies that he said, you know, they are all about this direct-to-consumer thing, which forces them to be intensely data-driven. So it, it is interesting, Wayne, I think, to underscore your point here for these big tech companies, reinforce who you are, but also clarify who you are becoming. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, when you talk about a small company really? like, like Snowflake, there's a couple of things going on. I've been a go-to-market advisor for a couple of software companies, and, of course, I bought from a lot of them. If you look at selling into a global enterprise, the first challenge you have is you're a small company and the procurement people get in your way. Well, you're not, you know, revenues aren't X, so you, how would you possibly sell to us? Or you haven't been around for 15 years, so how can we possibly qualify? Or your investment grade is not, you know, A plus, so how can we, and you wind up as a CIO, the frustration of the procurement function is real. Getting on the approved vendor list is hard. The other thing is sell cycle. I work with a company that did big mainframe systems to very large clients and their sell cycle was measured in years because how often do you IPL the mainframe? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So just getting the system installed to test it becomes a challenge. And, and that, so there's that, and then there's the install base problem. I have these 800 applications all running. And now you come along with this Swiss Army knife that's going to fix a lot of my problems. Now I've got to get 47 product managers in IT to go, yeah, I'll do that. And so they all get together and vote no, or they vote with inertia. Mm-hmm. Small companies, number one, make decisions quicker. You go to a small company, you get to the CEO or the CIO or the CTO, and they go, yep, let's try that. And two weeks later, you're in pilot. Yeah. Uh, that's number one. Number two, their architectures tend to be cleaner. Some companies that are born in the cloud don't have the technical debt that these larger enterprises drag along with them. Uh, so they have an easier sell cycle. They have a more entrepreneurial nature, and they have a cleaner architecture for cloud vendors. So all those things say, if I was a cloud vendor, I would be selling into the small accounts too, because I can't survive the cash burn if I have to go to the big uh, players only. So I think it makes a lot of sense, and it's a tribute to them, the number of large players that have been willing to kind of probably procurement how to hold their nose to sign that agreement and give them a try. And then, of course, if you pick the right vendor, you're vindicated and you're a hero, and you vault past your competitors in the acceleration economy. Yeah. And Wayne, I I hope so, too, that in addition to holding their noses, some of those procurement people are starting to realize they maybe the rules of the past don't apply here. And maybe we need to think a little bit more about how to be part of this acceleration movement inside the organization, right? You know, be the uh, rigorous bulldog there, you know, protecting things, but also um, move more quickly. You know, everybody's doing it. Wayne, I know you've got some great thoughts on workflow. We'll get to those in one second, but first I wanted to offer a word from our sponsor, BMC. BMC wants to know, is your business on its A-game? That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A-game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A-game. So, Wayne, workflow, it's all brand new, right? Never been talked about before. Yeah, it's um, it's old wine and new bottles, uh, Bob. You know, I saw your piece on on ServiceNow, and while they're doing a terrific job, I have a message for your industry cloud battleground traditional ERP players. So here's a message to all of you. If you look at what the ServiceNow architecture offers, it is very well done workflow, very high quality, good management, good oversight. It is industry and process templates galore. I can hook this process to that process very easily. And it's got a ton of integrations. So if I'm an IT director, a CIO, a CHRO, um, anybody really, I can automate my process and do this digital optimization that I talk about a lot very quickly and easily. And that's terrific. I mean, they really have a good product and they found a niche helping companies get value quickly. But here's the question for the industry cloud battleground, traditional players. You all have workflow, you all have templates, you all have low code tools now to create additional templates. You all have integrations and you're adding them at an insanely rapid rate. Plus, of course, some of the modern technology lets us add integrations very easily. And you have an ERP and a CRM system underlying all of that stuff. So why aren't you competing better? 
Why aren't you repackaging your message to say, we got this and we can build it on top of what you've got? Now, not taking anything away from ServiceNow, but if I was Microsoft or Oracle or SAP or, or Salesforce, and Salesforce may be doing the best job of coming against the ServiceNow message, how do you message all this stuff? I just need a few more licenses and my, my people with the training already can implement this. So I think it's, it could be a harder fight for, for ServiceNow if the other vendors, dare I say it, wake up to the challenge. In, in some ways, it looks like the RPA market. Robotic process automation came from nowhere and all of a sudden became this hot, hot, hot commodity. What they did was they took BPA or BPM or workflow or document management or call it what you want. They added the screen scraping capability, which I use screen scraping with attachment in the 1980s. Um, they added a whole bunch of templates and a whole bunch of integration and a low code tool so that the average uh, community developer could build stuff quickly. And they took a lot of these things, packaged them together very thoughtfully, and then sold them as a whole new product category. And I did not see the right response from the traditional BPA, BPM workflow doc management vendors who could have really come out on top, but they just didn't realize they were being a little bit of out teched, but more out marketed. Mm -hmm. And so I see this again. It's obviously a market. Look, I talk about uh, digital optimization all the time. And if you're a CIO and you are not optimizing all your processes quickly and easily, with RPA, with ServiceNow, with low-code, no-code, and interfaces, and so on. You're missing the boat. And so here's my challenge to the industry cloud battleground vendors that are traditional ERP, CRM. Come out swinging. Make this a real fight, because I, I represent clients. I service clients. I want them to have choices, and I want the prices to be competitive. So here's my challenge to the industry. Make it a real fight. Mm -hmm. Well, Wayne, you know, that, that goes along with so much what we're seeing uh, sort of across the board, right? That the, nobody gets to sort of sit back and say, well, I'm just doing what I've always done and I'm going to do it a little bit better. Um, you know, if there's a market where there's value in it, the, the, the big tech vendors are going sideways, they're going diagonally, they're going, you know, in, in crazy circles to get to new places like this. So um, I think this is great, right? The, the competition makes everybody better. And man, oh man, I would say, you know, in the cloud wars, the real customers are the, uh, the real winners are the customers because they get to benefit from the incredible innovation and competitive, uh, you know, energy of these, you know, some of the most valuable companies on earth and, uh, you know, some of the most well-funded. So it, it's just extraordinary. And Wayne, the other thing that I think it becomes, uh, so, so interesting in this, and it also plays into the next topic that you want to talk about, is the the rise of you know developers uh, inside organizations as power brokers, right? Not just in the tech companies, but in any sort of a company, right? They are starting to become uh, you know the the superstars here, right? The 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 coolest of the cool kids in this next generation. You know. Whether it's developed, certainly within the tech companies, it's developers. If you can't code, what good are you if you're a tech company? But within the consumer companies, the end user companies, I'm going to say this, having been an old assembler programmer, I wrote mainframe assembler code, which is the gnarliest code I know of. <laughs> um, it's, it's less about being a developer these days and, being a, and, and more about being a composer. 
If I've got the components from the cloud companies and I've got the RPA or the ServiceNow or the workflow or the low code, the value I add is not writing code as much as it is taking the pieces and making them sing harmoniously together to solve a particular business problem. My job as a CIO, my team's job as an IT company, uh, IT user company is not to write code. It's to find solutions to my users' problems. And Bob, we talk about technical debt all the time. Uh, writing code creates technical debt. Let that be somebody else's problem who's spending a billion dollars a year on change management and security updates. The code I write, we've got to maintain forever. Mm-hmm. The code I buy, especially in the SaaS world, somebody else maintains for me. Mm-hmm. So again, a message to CEOs, a message to boards. If your company is about writing code and you're not selling the code, if IT, as I always talk about, is SGNA rather than COGS, why are you writing a lot of code? Unless you're in some truly niche business where something just doesn't exist and can't be modified with modern tools, go write code. But everybody else, ask your CIO, ask your CTO, why are you not buying? Why, why are you building? Because the tools in the cloud world are getting better at such a rapid rate. And unless you're a giant, giant company, you can't keep up. Who keeps up with Microsoft and Amazon and Google in terms of tech investment? Nobody. Um, yeah. Nobody. Um, I mean, again, if you're the, one of the large investment banks or the global uh, uh, deposit banks in the world, you got a $4 billion, $5 billion, $8 billion budget. In your niche, you can do fine. But that's because you work in a niche. You don't cover the broad spectrum. Yeah. So, so let's say IT people... But I think it's more almost processed people, problem solvers. But they are, within the tech companies, clearly the coders, the developers, the people who can crank out good solutions with good security, with low technical debt, are, are running the world. Yeah. And for the rest of the companies, it's people who can go <clears throat> fix their stuff when it's broken and make it better when other people are competing. Yeah, yeah. And Wayne, those people doing those sorts of things now... Um... They are working, I don't know, work from home, work from anywhere. Is this the new permanent condition? Um, I think sometimes, Wayne, too, about, you know, our parents and, you know, this Omicron, I think, didn't the, the South African researcher who discovered it, you know, has been shocked by some of the reaction to it. Uh, he said it's actually quite mild, but maybe this is the, I hope for not a real long time, maybe this is the mindset we've all developed that you know we become so aware of and perhaps afraid of some of these issues that have always been around to some extent or another that we've had to live with. But the impact you know, to our purpose here is about is this delaying that return to work, right? I, Wayne, I think it was in the last several weeks, saw a lot of pictures from people with big companies taking pictures from their offices. It's so great. Love being around people again. We got back together. This is fabulous. But um, there's also a lot of other folks that I think, you know, what an Omicron or whatever the hell it is, whatever the next one's going to be, they just say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm done going to offices. It's a, it's a, and it's an extraordinary time. And you, you've got some thoughts here about the cultural impact of this. Well, well, first of all, let me let me comment on what you said. Yes, a lot of companies have said we're going to reopen. Remember, they were going to reopen late summer of 2021. 
and then Delta hit, and now it was fall, and then fall became end of the year, and end of the year became early 2022, and now they've had to rethink that with Omicron. Now it's sometime in 2022. I said in a Cloud Wars and a column for Acceleration Economy, after you've been away from the office for over two years, and it'll be two years by the time these folks start thinking about their hybrid reopening, blah, 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 you're, you're on your third lease. You've moved. You've decided that you don't want this two-hour commute. And of course, as we talked about before, a lot of companies are saying to not create the two-tier society, those that are at work who all sit around the conference room and you know, you see them with the big camera in the corner and there's 50 heads around the table. And then the other people who are at work, who are at home in the little, the little Hollywood Squares boxes. So a number of big companies have said, everybody bring your laptop into the meeting room and we'll all have a Hollywood Squares box like you and I are in. So but the other thing because of contagiousness and people's different susceptibility is if you go to the office, don't leave your cube or office. When you're meeting, stay there. So you're asking me to drive an hour or commute on a subway or a bus or whatever, and then take an elevator up to my building in a small confine, and then sit in my office and go to a video conference with people around the world. So how does that make any sense? That's number one. Um, number two, we're in a DEI world. I'm an advisor to Via Group Partners, which is a DEI company in the executive search space. You've got folks that, because they're immunocompromised or because they have other physical limitations, have never been fully embraced by the workforce. So work from home, work from anywhere, allows people who have physical limitations to participate more fully or who have other problems. Work from home allows people to be, workplaces to be more inclusive. And I think we all believe, and research has shown, that a more inclusive workplace produces a better outcome for not only the people working there, but society as a whole and their customers. So here we have this tremendous opportunity. The tools have gotten better. You know, Microsoft just introduced Loop uh, components within the Teams infrastructure. Salesforce is pushing Slack as being a, a integration tool. Uh, obviously, Zoom isn't sitting still. I just updated a Zoom this morning before we got on this call. The tools are getting better. The networks are getting better. The DE&I aspect is terrific. We're kind of worried about what the next step of the pandemic is going to be. So what's the big problem? The big problem has been the CEO who says, I want to see my workforce. I want to be able to walk out my corner office and go, there they are working. You know what? You run a multinational, you're only seeing a tiny little sliver of your workforce. And by the way, if you make anything or touch customers, your bulk of your people have been at work forever. Why are we making office workers who are, in theory, the force multipliers of the company, the analysts, the managers, the, the, the thinkers, the changers, why are we making them do this silly commute? It's because the CEO is, is rooted in this idea that face-to-face, -face, having a Christmas party and the, the birthday celebrations and being able to meet in the office water cooler area. I'll say this to the CEO and board. First of all, you've got the, what I call, I'll call it the screenish generation, millennials. Uh, my daughter's 28. She is as used to operating with screens and asynchronous communication as she is operating face-to-face. -face. Um, go down 10 years, people that are entering the workforce. I mentor grad students at University of Texas at Dallas. They are totally at home on Zoom, totally at home on their screen, totally at home. Their culture isn't inferior. Their culture is just different. Mm -hmm. 
You know, my dad used to have to put on a stiff collar and work every Saturday um, because that was expected of him. So now when we all started working five day weeks, my dad said, the world is falling apart. And when we didn't have to wear collars, stiff collars and, and you know, ties tied around our neck like this, that generation said, y'all falling apart, the younger generation. Hey, man, let's not do it again. I'm an old guy. I can say that. <clears throat> if you're a CEO, actively figure out and manage and shape your culture. Do not say it's just falling apart unless they all come here and we have birthday parties or yeah. meet in the hallway. How do you how do you create a hallway conversation when you don't have a physical hallway? How do you set up a Slack channel or a Teams channel or moderate things, run breakout rooms, actively manage your culture, engage with people who understand culture and culture shifts, and then figure out the culture of the workforce you want to attract, not the workforce that you grew up in. The problem with being a, a senior executive is you tend to be older especially in legacy companies. And you grew up in a time when there weren't screens, when there wasn't email or email was horrible. And so we did it with memos and faxes and face-to-face -face meetings and standing in the same place. And I'll maintain there are going to be things lost, but there are also going to be things gained. Yeah. And as CEOs and boards, let's stop applying your cultural norms to the workforce that's emerging. And that's the, the pandemic for all of its miserable, horrible fatal, lethal things has given our culture an opportunity to move forward, to embrace things we couldn't imagine embracing before. And so the message that I want to give to the CEO of the board is think about the workforce coming in and that you're trying to work and stop thinking of yourself and how you look at the world and embrace the difference because yeah. that gives you the opportunity to build a much more competitive, much more inclusive, much more equitable company and in the long run, that benefits the shareholders, which is why you are doing it, and benefits the society at large, which is, dare I say it, why you should be doing it. Beautifully said, Wayne. Yes, the uh, <clears throat> the workplace culture evolves, and it, it always has, it always will. I loved your stories there about you know recalling your dad and you know, his perspectives. And we all say, we, oh, I don't want to say the same thing my parents said, but we often do like, oh, well, this is falling apart and so on. Wayne, thanks. This was really, um, you know, wonderful stuff there. As always, you provide uh, lots of things for people to think about. Uh, don't settle. You don't let people get sort of overly comfortable where they are. We got to all keep moving forward, right? Because the world's changing very fast. And uh, I think it's one of the reasons why you've been a big success as an advisor to boards of directors and CEOs. Yeah, sometimes I make them uncomfortable, but oftentimes I get them to think. And, and Bob, thank you for the bully pulpit. You know, it's great to be able to reach the wide audience. And, and this one, this piece may be more than some, should get people arguing. Yeah. I don't get enough argument, Bob. You know, I, we post this stuff and we do the acceleration economy stuff. People read it and I assume they've read it to the end and maybe they have an opinion. But unless we're doing one of our uh, analyst to analyst, head to head conversations. I rarely hear feedback. So like I ask everybody in every presentation, please give us feedback, talk to Bob, talk to me, talk to us all, give us your opinion, give us your thoughts. And especially tell me if I'm wrong. I think this business about culture, I don't know the answer because I don't know what the culture is going to evolve into. I don't even know what all the emojis mean. And <laughs> by the way, they don't mean what you think they mean if you're not 20 years old. That I learned. 
Um, there's a whole lot of ironic emojis that you and I don't get unless you ask your grandkids. So anyway, um, this should be a, a thought-provoking discussion. And it's not one that's going to be easy because we're going to make a lot of people uncomfortable with the question of, can we really build a productive company where people are working from home forever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Wayne, that's great. Um, good. I think some discomfort these days is nice with the world moving as fast as it is. If we all felt real comfortable all the time. We're probably not moving fast enough here in the acceleration economy. Wayne, thanks. Always a pleasure to see you. And folks, thanks to all of you for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. If you've got arguments, send them to Wayne. If you've got compliments, send them to me. We'll see you next time. Bye, Bob. <laughs>